I want to turn our attention this morning and also for the next few weeks to our first reading for Easter. During the Easter season, we have a series of readings from the Acts of the Apostles as we see God at work in Jesus, even after his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Now, last week, we had two men at an empty tomb talking to a group of women and asking them a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, they gave the women no instructions, according to Luke, on what to do next. And yet immediately, they went and told the others of what they had seen and heard at the tomb. Their master, who just three days before had been crucified, died, and been buried, was alive. Now today, we fast forward quite a little bit into the future where the apostles are preaching and teaching on the temple grounds, specifically in Solomon's portico. And they are preaching the same message that the women probably brought to the men. Jesus had been nailed to the tree, buried, and then rose again to life from the dead. The question is, so what? Often we stop and forget to ask that question. Okay, so this man was crucified, he died, he was buried, and now he rose again. What does it mean? N.T. Wright, the great scholar and pastor of the British church, often makes the point that just because Jesus rose from the dead does not immediately lead to the apostles going, oh, because he died, we will live again too. There's a lot that has to be puzzled out here about the meaning of this life, this new resurrection. And so here we have the apostles being thrown into prison for speaking this message, only to have an angel come and release them, and this time, give them instructions. Tell them what to say. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's the hint, you see, about what this means, that Jesus was crucified dead and buried and rose again, that all of that is somehow wrapped up in the message that the angel calls this life, and that this life must be a message proclaimed to the people, all the people. So what does that mean? And what is this life? Well, first of all, and I gave you a little hint there, there's something about where the apostles are preaching, not simply in the temple, but in Solomon's portico. Now, I will forgive all of you if you don't have a background in temple architecture and don't exactly know how the temple in the time of Jesus and the apostles was set up. But basically, it's a series of concentric rings. Right in the middle of the ring is the holy of holy places into which the high priest of God only entered once a year on the day of atonement to stand before the mercy seat of God and plead for the forgiveness of sins. That was the place where God would descend on the mercy seat and provide atonement. 
it's separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain. And that curtain was ripped open at Jesus' death. God has now leaked out into the world. He's no longer there at the center. He's fled out through the center into what's called the Holy of Holies, the next concentric circle where the altar, the giant wash basin, and the menorah, the candelabra are set, and even leaked out of there into the next court, the court of the men. No women, only the men were allowed to get into that next ring closer to God, and even leaked out of that court into the next court, the court of the women and the court of the non-Jews. Our court. And ringing one side of that court was a specific structure built by Herod the Great called Solomon's portico. The closest thing we have at Ascension to Solomon's portico is what, do you think? It's our iron fence. It's the very place where Lyman stands and the rest of us to give out cider. And why does Lyman set up there at the wrought iron fence with his cider? Because he is both in the church and outside of it, able to interact with those who are coming out of the church and also with those just walking by on the sidewalk. That is our Solomon's portico. And that's where the apostles go to take their stand because God is no longer constrained to that holy of holies. He has taken his eternal life in Jesus and brought it all the way out to the borders of the world. So that's where the people of God and the apostles are teaching that both Gentile and Jew, men and women, might hear the words of this life. Now, what are they doing to demonstrate this life? healing, exorcisms. People are bringing their sick from all over the city to come and bring them to the apostles. They're bringing those who are possessed to come and be set free by the word of Jesus, the word of this life being spoken by the apostles. There is an acknowledgement here that sickness and oppression by demonic forces is not right. And that God has demonstrated in Jesus that it is not a part of this life that he wants for you and me. Sickness is not looked upon by God as good. The demons are not looked upon by God as being good. And certainly death is not looked upon by God as being good. Now, it's true that the apostles aren't fixing everything. It's not like somehow a... Marvel Universe type of wave goes out from the cross on Good Friday and all sicknesses are healed and all the hungry are fed and all the dead are raised. But there are signs being performed here by the apostles. And what does a sign do? A sign is not the thing itself, but it points to it. When I go to visit my mom, I pass a big sign that says City of Ottawa, population 1 million but it sure doesn't feel like I'm in Ottawa yet because I'm way out in Cumberland and it's still cows and farmland. But I know I'm getting there and I know I'm on the right path. 
And I know that if I keep going, I will eventually end up in the nation's capital. And that's what the apostles are doing to demonstrate this life and what it's like. These signs, sickness being healed, people possessed by demons being set free. And do you notice the reaction of the people? I think the reaction of the people is also incredibly important to what it looks like when this life that has come now in Jesus goes out into the world. Luke writes in Acts, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. It's like people don't want to go to church, but they really like the people that do. Wouldn't that be great? If that's the way it worked, because it should be that way. It's kind of like President Zelensky and the forces of Ukraine right now. We're not in a big rush to pick up arms and go to Ukraine. It's scary. You should be a little bit afraid. Death is a war is not a safe thing. Yet we hold those people that are fighting for their country in very high esteem. In the same way, we look at our medical angels, we called them, right? The people that worked in our hospitals, in our nursing homes, in our old age care centers. We called them our angels because we esteemed the work that they were doing. There was even a time, can you remember this? Can you remember the time at the very beginning of the pandemic when we went out on our balconies and banged pots and pans together every time the shifts changed the hospitals? We held them in high esteem, even though when the government said, who would like to go and join them? The list was rather short. That's how the people treated the apostles. It's how they treated the first Christians, the general people of Jerusalem. You're a little bit too committed for me, but, but good on you for what you're doing. That was not the reaction of the religious leaders. The leaders were the problem. For the leaders, what the apostles were doing, pointing to this life as being specifically what God is doing in Jesus, scared them. They were jealous of losing their power. They were so filled with jealousy, Acts records, that they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, the people in general, might have been kind of ambivalent of what the apostles were doing. The leaders were not. Anything that threatened their authority and power had to be taken away. And in so doing, they demonstrated that far too often the religious leaders are the ones more interested in death than in life. So to speak this life, to go take your stand in the temple and be about this life. The apostles went publicly. They didn't hide away. They went there and stood by the wrought iron fence. So we're not going to hide from you who we are. They brought healing and hope in Christ Jesus, recognizing that the world is broken, not promising to fix the whole world, but showing that God was intending to do just that on the last day, providing that sign that says this is the path. Keep on this road and you will end up in life. 
And at the same time, expecting that for many of the people, they would admire them, but maybe not join them. And that the leaders would find them a threat. Now, I told you that all of this has to have something to do with us, right? Okay, so we see that Jesus died on the cross. We hear that he was buried. We heard the voices of the women and now have seen the witness of the apostles in John that Jesus was risen from the dead. Well, what does that mean for our life together as God's people in Christ in the 21st century living here in Quebec? First of all, the fact that the apostles stood there both in the temple and on the edge of the temple says something truly profound about what it means to be inside and outside the church. I often heard when I was a lot younger and training to be a pastor, people talking about the difference between a maintenance ministry and a mission ministry. I don't know if any of you have ever heard those terms. I hope you haven't. That's good. Now unhear them like I didn't say them. Pastors would say, I do a maintenance ministry, really, which means I've got the same people that come every Sunday, and I'm not really involved in the mission because they, they just don't really want to go out and tell people about Jesus. So I'm just, I'm just maintaining them. And another pastor will say, well, I can't worry about the people in the pew. I'm not there for them. I'm there for the people outside the walls, people who haven't heard about Jesus, as if somehow these two groups are two totally different kinds of people. The truth of the matter is that the apostles have to be both in and preaching to those outside the temple because you and I are as liable to fall into false belief and despair every day as the people that are outside these walls. We need Jesus right now today to be the one who gives us this life as much as the people out there need this life. Don't pit one against the other just because you happen to be sitting in a pew or just because somebody else isn't sitting in the pew doesn't mean there's a grade of how much or how little one of them needs Jesus. Same is true of pastors. We need Jesus too. My big temptation is always to cut the district convention short so I can get back here so I can be leading worship on Sunday. And it was your deaconess that said, you are not going to do that, pastor. We're going to make you stay because you need to hear Jesus and receive Jesus as well. The message we're called to bring about this life is a message of healing. Now, I know what you're going to say. I've never healed anybody. And I'll be honest, I haven't either. There are lots of times when I've wanted to be able to go into a hospital and just lay hands on somebody and say, Lord, cure them of this cancer and have it happen. That would be great. But then my more sane moments, I'll step back and ask myself, well, what if that did happen? What if I could do it again and again? I'm not sure that we're built nowadays to do that kind of a sign. Because in the end, that sign will end up probably not pointing to Jesus, but pointing to us. But there are signs we can perform that point to Jesus. Whether that sign is helping someone learn English in a new culture, whether that sign is giving someone a hot cup of cider, whether that sign is 
hosting an open house to teach people about avoiding fraud or trusting the police forces when they need help or learning how to navigate Canada and Quebec's very complicated immigration system. These are signs that we do to point people to the fact that God wants a world where there is life, to point people to this life in Jesus. And we know what the reaction is going to be if we do those things. The reaction will be from a great many people, good on you. I think we've seen some of that reaction when we plan these open houses. At first, there's a little bit of, well, you're a church, we'll see what happens. But by and large, people are like, could you do that again? Could we do another vaccine clinic? Could we come and talk to you again about what Prami Quebec is doing? People come back to our English classes. People invite friends to come to our English classes. Not everybody is right away ready to join here at this altar and receiving the body and blood of Christ or even make the step to the font. But then some people do, and some people are. An opposition to bringing this life into our community will come, but it'll come from the strangest places, and usually not from the people in general, but from leaders who are terrified that they might lose a little bit of their power or authority. N.T. Wright that I talked about earlier in the message, said this in his definitive book on Easter called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's about this thick. The whole early Christian message can be summed up in the two-word phrase, this life. That's what we've been talking about this morning, and it's why I really wanted to reflect on these words from Acts, that the whole Christian message, if we wanted to go shorter than the good news place, could just be to say this life. Because what Jesus came to defeat was death, that he might bring life. It's why he spoke to John and said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, which is the abode of the dead. Secondly, that life is not just for some people. Life is for all people, which is why we take our stand in Solomon's portico on that place in between the world and the people of God. It's why Jesus said right before his crucifixion in John's gospel and his passion, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And yes, that message will find opposition from those who would like to control access to Jesus. That's why Jesus also warned the leaders of his time, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Because you won't let go of your life that God might give you his. But for those who have found life, who have found Jesus, who have found hope and healing and joy and peace, we know to share that word with them again. And it's why John, near the end of his gospel, wrote what we just heard today. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We might even add this life. Amen.